Well, this book is addressing God's power in relation to God's love. And that's a subject I've been working on literally for decades. Well, in this episode, um, we're welcoming Reverend Dr. Thomas J. Ord, and we're going to talk about uh, his book published this year, the Death of Omnipotence. We're going to welcome Tom to talk a little bit about this book and uh, his purpose for writing it and uh, invite you all into this conversation. Um, and as always, you know, once this is posted, you can make comments, you can uh, come in feedback, kind of expect that. But uh, I've, I've known Tom kind of online now for a few years. We've had a few conversations and read a ton of his books. So I think you're going to enjoy this episode and especially on this topic because I think it's a very important one for the church today in the way that we talk about God, who God is, and the ways that we interact with God. So, Tom, kind of tell us a little bit about why you wrote this particular book. Well, this book is addressing God's power in relation to God's love. And that's a subject I've been working on literally for decades and written uh, various books in the past on it. In fact, one of my books called God Can't uh, has sold really well and had a a big influence. But the negative uh, aspect of the title, which is God Can't, is that many people thought, well, you have to choose either between a God who is controlling or a God who does nothing. And so I wanted to have a book that proposed an alternative to the God who does nothing, because the God I believe in is neither uh, a do-it-all nor a a God who sits on Mars eating popcorn. Right. No, that's good. So, and I think you kind of open up right away uh, when you talk about, especially the big word omnipotence. Um, You point out a few things that the omnis, as we like to call them, aren't really in scripture anyway that the omnis come from Greek thought. But I like that you, early on, you talk about how it's common when we talk about God being omnipotent, that then when you start asking questions about what does that mean, that there's usually either an appeal to mystery or we venture into something like theodicy or we just get into just very conflicting ideas. Um, I I like to say the a few months ago or so, a discussion online with some other pastors, we were talking about omnipotence, especially, and free will. And one of the comments that somebody had was, you could not have free will without omnipotence. And it blew my mind because I think omnipotence itself, in the way that it's popularly ex- expressed at least, tends to make free will a little bit less logical. But <laughs> so... So you kind of talk about the death of a thousand cuts, and could you kind of talk about that a little bit in terms of just the word omnipotence? Well, omnipotence has a variety of meanings, and early on in this book, I identify for the reader three major meanings. And by major, I mean these are meanings that we can find many theologians, the most famous theologians, in fact, in history using. And those three are the idea of omnipotence as God being able to do absolutely anything, 
Secondly, some people think of it as God being the one who exerts all power, which like you, it's hard for me to reconcile that one with free will. And then third, and this third one is probably most common in the Wesleyan kind of circles we run in. It's the idea that God is omnipotent in the sense that God can control creatures or creation. Doesn't usually maybe do that, but God could if God wanted to. And so those are the three big uh, ways to think about omnipotence. And especially on the question of, um, you know, God being able to do absolutely anything, many, many theologians and philosophers in history have said that, and then they've quickly qualified it. They've said, you know, God can do anything, but God can't do what is illogical. You know, God can't make a married bachelor. Or they'll say, God can do anything, but God can't make 2 plus 2 equal 397. Or, you know, God can do anything, but God can't tell a lie. Um, All of these are important provisos or exemptions from the notion of God, the idea that God can do anything. And there's this real, I think, not just tension, contradiction at the heart of omnipotence in the tradition. Yeah, so very, very good stuff there, especially understanding uh, what we mean by omnipotence. And I, I think you highlight, especially within Wesleyan streams, that idea that God can, but God chooses not to. But there's there's some, I think there's some theological and doctrinal issues with the understanding that God can do something, but God chooses not to. And I understand, you know, when we get into some of the understandings of giving up, but I think even when we look at Jesus and the canonic understanding of what what the incarnation is, um, you know, Jesus gives up everything, but we also have to think that there is a divinity there. So, in that picture, we can see a picture of God who's not omnipotent, at least in the popular yeah. understanding. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what a lot of people, at least in the Western tradition, have said is that Jesus is omnipotent at least prior to coming to Earth. But then through a self-withdrawal uh, or self-emptying, Jesus shed that omnipotent ability. Now, some will say Jesus had to have omnipotence to do miracles, but I think that's not, uh, not a very strong argument. Uh, we see miracles now, and we don't think the people who are doing them are omnipotent. So, right. yeah. um, so most people would say Jesus once was omnipotent, and then when he became human, he set aside that omnipotence, at least temporarily. But then God the Father remains omnipotent. And I think you can make a really good argument that if Jesus is not omnipotent, maybe we shouldn't think that God the Father is omnipotent either. Um, and I've done that in some other books. I, I don't discuss it quite as much in this one, but uh, that's an important uh, methodological move. Yeah, I think yeah, you, you highlight the very the, the thing that especially we as Wesleyans tend to want to do or or reach for is that that when we look at God, we have to look at, at God, we look at scripture, we look at everything through the lens of Jesus in yeah. that perfect revelation. So I would say that, that that's something I think that some that are struggling a bit with this understanding can say, Well, let me let me lean into who Jesus is to be able to understand who God is. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, again, since we're talking about our tradition here a lot, um, very few people I know who are in the Western tradition will say, God controls absolutely everything, and we have no free will. 
you know, we usually say that's a Calvinist view and we reject it. Now, I do know some people, especially people who aren't in higher education, who will say God is in control, but we have free will. And they take what in, in philosophy is called a compatibilist stance, which is we're free, but God controls us, which makes no sense to me. And <laughs> I think it's a contradiction. But, you know, some people hold that. The most common view says that God is omnipotent and we have free will but God voluntarily chooses not to control us, at least most of the time. Maybe God does so occasionally here and there. And God could, you know, let's say at the end. And I'm making the radical proposal in this book and in in some others that God simply can't ever control anyone at any time because God is loving and love is inherently uncontrolled. And so I think that'll shift us very quickly, um, and we'll we'll probably come back to omnipotence, but uh, I think we can bury it, so to speak, right now, pun intended. Um, but to to the word that you've coined, and you coined it actually in the book, um, in your book on love. Yeah, pluriform love. Pluriform a- love. So. But um, talk a bit about the word omnipotence and and what that means and why that's a better expression of who God is uh, than omnipotence, especially. Yeah, so we began by me saying that omnipotence has got lots of problems. And one of my goals for this book was to offer an alternative. And I coined this word omnipotence, A-M-I, ami is the prefix. And that's a word in Latin that we means love. We find it in words like uh, amigo or amicable or amity. And then potent is for influence or power. So God's love is the power of love, I argue. Now, I'm not the first one to say God's, love is, uh, God's power is the power of love. But um, most people who want to say that end up retaining some kind of form of omnipotence. And then, as I see it, They never get past the conceptual conundrums that arise from affirming both omnipotence and a God of love. And so by omnipotence, I'm prioritizing love over power. Or to put it better, I think we should understand God's power in the light of God's love rather than vice versa. And I think think that, that stands squarely within understanding God is relational. Yeah. So um I would I would think that, that going going back even to Wesley, we, we see a lot of relational there. We we can we can talk about the, the different ways that we reflect back, but I would say that, that within the stream, especially if we're talking about our tradition, especially here, is that that love is that expression of God. You know, we, we have Wynkoop, Dunning, yourself, others who have leaned into this Randy Maddox, in fact, as well. Um, where love is the central understanding for who God is for us, and we have to we have to look at everything around that. So, what is holiness? What is transcendence? What is eminence? Um, what I like to tell tell our classes and our discipleship groups at our church is that one of the ways to look at God's transcendence is that God is transcendent within God's eminence. And I think when we think of relationship especially, I think that's important. And that's where words like omnipotence are very helpful, I think, as we discuss who God is. Now, 
You do another thing, at least in pluriform love, which I think will help to understanding omnipotence and the rejection of omnipotence, and that is you you seek to define love. Mm. So, and I think that would help here as well. That as we talk about omnipotence and what when we talk about God's love as you know power as coming from love or even just power in light of love is what do you mean when you use the word love? Yeah, yeah. For me, that's huge. And and if I were to give you a little biographical uh, narrative, we'd have to go back about 25 or 30 years. And it would be me thinking that if I was going to be a Christian and uh, I was really attracted to the theology of John Wesley and influenced by Mildred Bang Winecoop, I had to have uh, some clarity about what love is. And Winecoop really never defines it carefully. Wesley doesn't really do a good job either. And I ultimately came to define love in this way. I think that to love is to act intentionally in relational response to God and others with the aim of promoting well-being. In fact, overall well-being. And so love to me is not accidental. It's an intention. It's an action. But it's something that we do because God first loved us. We're in relationship with God. But it's not just me and God. It's We're part of a community, not only of people, but of creation. So our relationships extend beyond even relation with God, with relation to the whole world. And then the aim or the goal of love is flourishing. It's abundant life, to use the words of Jesus. It's blessedness, to use the what the psalmist would say. That's what I think love is all about. Yeah, and I think I think it's important, um, and you highlight that, especially when we think of relational um, understandings of God, of theology, of who we are, is that that it's not just a relationship to God. Um, this our relationship is not just with God, and and we can't as humanity. Our relationship is with one another. We know that as community, but as as you also point out, creation. Yeah, and. Um, I think I think we see pictures of that throughout Scripture as well. I mean, when Paul talks about resurrection, he's talking about all of creation. And I think we tend to miss that because we, we focus a lot here in the West, especially in America, on the individual. And mm-hmm. I think when we're talking about love, when we're talking about who God is in love, you know, we've we've got the Trinity as a picture, and there's a lot of mystery there to the way we talk about Trinity. But ultimately, it's relationship. And when when we are relational beings and we we worship a relational God, that I I don't see another way that we can express ourselves other than relationship with God, with creation, with everything around us. And I think you highlight that a lot when you talk about um, how God works, because I think I think a lot of the the pushback against rejecting omnipotence. As, as something is mostly from those who are afraid, as you said, God either does nothing or God does everything. And yeah. I think, I think as Wesleyans, I don't, I don't think we like extremes of any kind anyway. We, we really like that via media, that, that middle way. We tend to do that, not in terms of the best of each, but finding a better way to express things. And I think with this, when we reject omnipotence and we, we lean into something like omnipotence, we have to understand that I think that is a God who works in the world 
every moment, I think, is the way you would say it. Um, because I think as we look at a God who's omnipotent, when I think of a God who's omnipotent, I think of the chick tracks. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think Brian Zahn talks about it. I remember seeing it. But the little chick track that had the picture of this faceless white God sitting on a throne with all this glory around. Yes. And all the people bowing. And stuff. Exactly. And there's there's this idea that God is just up there with all this power, making decisions and pulling strings like a puppet. But we don't see that picture of God throughout Scripture. I mean, I like to to talk about, especially the Hebrew Scriptures, we were just talking about divine healing because we're going through the articles of faith in in one of our adult Sunday school classes. And we were talking a lot about the way that when we look at Scripture, sometimes we think too much of of God controlling even that. Mm. And when we read Scripture, we need to read it, try and understand what the original hearers heard. Mm. And the Old Testament especially is, I'd like to say it's an ongoing argument with God. Um, I I lean into, um, Bono likes to talk about art being humanity's ongoing argument with God of just responding um, to, I think that's the same thing we see because, you know, if you, if you put some Psalms up against some Proverbs, there's going to be an argument there. Mm. And I think we see a lot of disagreement or just pushback of, of talking to God and lament and those kinds of things that opens the door for us to understand God, I think, in a very different way than the way we've popularly looked at at God. And I think we're we're influenced very heavily by some neo-Calvinist understandings because we're afraid to let go of a God who we think controls. But I think it's a lot better if we lean into that God who loves so much that God is is a part of creation and working in creation. And as as Maddox likes to say, it's our response to grace. Mm. Um, you know, our response is the response to God, and the, and that's how God works. I, I like. I had a beautiful picture. I, I recently took a, a class at NNU with Dr. Brent Peterson on sacraments in the church. Good. And um, and I've shared I've shared the essay online about communion, especially, and I was I came to an understanding, and and I think. Uh, Brent actually mentions this in his book on the church, that part of the presence of Christ in Eucharist is the people coming forward, those mm-hmm. bodies coming forward to Eucharist. And we we talk a lot about that at our church, about the participation and how Christ is there in the table. Mm. And I think I lean into that heavily here when we talk about relational theology, when we talk about open relational theology, and we talk about how God is who God is. And I think you focus a lot, especially in the early part of the book. We've talked a bit about the different um, ways that we look at omnipotence itself. Mm-hmm. But I like what you do at the beginning of the book. You take some Hebrew words and a Greek word. And and these are words that have traditionally been translated in English as almighty. Mm-hmm. And I think I think even almighty can can kind of take something that's someone who's not omnipotent. Yeah. But I think we get hung up on all and mighty. Mm-hmm. And I think I think your discussion of that is is amazing. So kind of talk about yeah. especially the two Hebrew words and then how we end up with Almighty through the Greek Pantocrator. So 
Yeah, that that chapter on scripture took me the longest to write, <laughs> uh, in part because, you know, although I've taken some Hebrew when I was in graduate school, I don't use it anymore and I've forgotten it all. So I have relied heavily upon uh, scholars for that section. And that's probably wise anyway, because, you know, what I'm saying is pretty radical. And I want to, I show in all the footnotes that uh, what I'm saying is supported by scholarship. But I tell the story of how two Hebrew words, one Shaddai and the other word Sabaoth, uh, ended up being translated as almighty in English or omnipotence in Latin. The original meanings for the word uh, Shaddai is something like breasts. Uh, so God is the breasted one. And when you see the word used in scripture, it's often in the context of a nourishment or fertility. Um, and then the word Sabaoth means hosts or group. And when it's preceded by the word El or Adonai or one of the other words for God, it means the Lord of hosts. So you have these two words, Shaddai and Sabaoth, that mean the God of breasts or the Lord of hosts. And when the Hebrew scriptures are translated into Greek in what's called the Septuagint in the second and third centuries BCE, the Greek translators choose one word in Greek for both those Hebrew words, and that one word is pantocrator. Panto is a prefix meaning all, and crater meaning something like holding. So God is all holding, they say. And then that word pantocrator shows up 10 times in the New Testament, nine of them in the book of Revelation. One, Paul is quoting from the uh, Septuagint in another passage. Uh, so the words that uh, is uh, we translate almighty, or at least we see translated almighty in the New Testament and the Old Testament, don't really mean that because of uh, the original words. And then around, what is it, the fourth century or so, the Latin scholar Jerome uh, translates the, the scriptures that we have today from the Septuagint, and he uses the word omnipotent for pantocrator. That is now in the creeds, you know, the Apostles' Creed. We, I believe in the Father, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, etc. So, um, one of the big points of this book is to say there's no biblical support for saying God is omnipotent. Yeah, no, that's that's good. And I think you also highlight the just rarity of Pantocrator in the New Testament itself. Like right. you said, nine times, and there's a lot of words in the New Testament. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that it only appears in that one of Paul who's quoting and we, we know he quotes the Septuagint a lot. He also sometimes even does a little paraphrasing. Right. But then Revelation, and I think I think Revelation being what it is, that Jewish apocalyptic literature kind of sh shades what, what's going on there. And maybe that, that person is also discussing, trying to fill in those Hebrew words as well. Because yeah. when we see the picture of liturgy in there, especially. Yeah, I think so. And also, I think the writer of Revelation is following um, a, a way of speaking we find in the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, in which the writers compare God to other kings or other gods and are bragging, hey, our God is stronger, our, you know, our God is uh, more powerful. 
And I actually do think God is more powerful than any other thing or any universe. So uh, that comparison thing can work with omnipotence. But um, that's different from saying God exerts all power or can do anything or controls others. Yeah, and I, I think I think that's an important distinction when we start talking about who God is, because I, I think it helps. Now, you know, obviously those who believe that God controls everything or God holds all power and either holds it back or, or utilizes it or, or whatever the thought is, um, often venture into things like theodicies, right. um, trying to, you know, defend God. And I think that leaves out the entire understanding of lament, of pushback, mm. and it makes it harder for protest theology. Mm. Now, I would say that liberation theology is going to be a little sketchier with amipotence, mm. but we ha- I think we have to understand the different ways that, that we understand and want to understand who God is. But I think especially within a Wesleyan understanding, if we see God as all-powerful, I think it messes with how we see sovereignty, uh, yeah. you know, a word we like to use, which I think the way that it's been drilled into me as I came from Wesleyanism from outside of Wesleyanism completely, a more Reformed tradition that I grew up in, okay, was that sovereignty was God is always sovereign in love. So very much like how we, how we look at God's power, we look at the same with sovereignty. And the way I like to look at it, and I, I hope this helps those of you that are already having trouble with what we're talking about. But um, when I think of sovereignty, I try to reject the understanding of a human sovereign because Mm -hmm. I think we get so shaped by what happened in the middle ages and Europe and the way that sovereigns had full control essentially over subjects lives and, and what, what went on in a country. Now, obviously they couldn't control every single thing, but that was the idea that they, they could exert the control over over their nation. But if we think of God as in sovereignty even and in an omnipotent understanding, we have to look at what when Jesus talks about kingdom and when Jesus talks about, you know, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, it's always an upside down and different way of looking at kingdom. Mm, you know, yeah. Jesus is always, you know, the first will be last, the last will be first that God is always siding with the oppressed. And that that's not just Jesus. Um, I think we see the clearest understanding. But if we look at the prophets in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew Scriptures, I think we see a lot there of, of God calling to those who would oppress, who would treat poorly. You know, so the understanding of the kingdom of God is not one where there is a sovereign controlling but a sovereign lifting up in love and mm-hmm. and drawing drawing others in, I think, would be the picture I would see of that. That's that's what we see in Jesus. I think that's kind of the picture we see. The the you know the difference between the Pharisees and what Jesus is saying is mostly about an understanding of trying to recover a kingdom in terms of a human kingdom where there's control and they they have ascendancy versus a kingdom of God in which um, we give up or we are there in response in relationship with others so that mm. our needs are not the only ones. And I think, I think that shapes our worship. Mm-hmm. I think it can shape 
the way that we interact with other people. And I think it makes the statements of Jesus, such as love your enemy and care for your enemy mm. um, and clothe your enemy. Those kind of statements from Jesus mean a lot more when we understand that um, this is not a sovereignty. This is not a power. This is not a control, but it is a way of being invited into something mm-hmm. and um, invited into relationship most, most pointedly, but I think we look at, at prevenient grace here we in within a Western understanding. Prevenient grace is is obviously an outpouring of love because it reaches out to all of creation. And it is that grace that is there that helps us to understand who God is and then respond um, in in terms of of who we are. I like a friend recently, I think he posted today, um, he calls some of this squirrely grace. <laughs> because it's the grace that's chaotic. And I think I think one of the things, when we talk about God, God does, we talk about God bringing order. So we look at Genesis, especially God is bringing order to chaos. But I think all of that has to be understood in terms of relationship. Because even, even the stories there in the first parts of Genesis, the stories of the garden, um, God can't control what, what Adam and Eve do in the garden. Mm, I mean, yeah. that's the story that, that, that there's no real control. You know, the serpent introduces is kind of the trickster with some stuff And the, you know, one of my favorite things to point out to people is the serpent never explicitly lies. Mm, right. The serpent, serpent just uses some words and says, Are, is this really? And, and twists around such that, that there's a relational break. And I think, that's often what we see here. You know, God says he can't see them. And a lot of that is because there's been a relational break. And I think in terms of omnipotence, those stories don't make a lot of sense. No, no. In terms, I, of, in terms of who God is. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think people come to the Bible with a view of God as omnipotent. And sometimes because they come with that view in their back of their mind, they will read passages and assume God acted in an omnipotent way, maybe parting the Red Sea or whatever. Uh, But the text never explicitly says God uses controlling power in an omnipotent way. And as you rightly point out, many, many, most, if not all, of the stories don't make a lot of sense if God has that ability. Now, I suspect, I suspect most of the people, if they're a Wesleyan, they're going to be on board with the idea that God doesn't control everything all the time, but they're probably going to have uh, maybe one of three worries that might arise for them if they give up on omnipotence. One worry might be that they can't imagine how miracles could occur if God is not omnipotent. And I've addressed that in, in several books and said that we can still believe in miracles. We just have to think that there's been some kind of creaturely response for these good and unusual events or the conditions of creation were conducive. So you don't have to give up on miracles if you give up on omnipotence. Another one that you just mentioned earlier is liberation. You know, some people say, how can an oppressed group have any hope? if God is not omnipotent, because only omnipotent God can rescue. And to those people, I say, that God's doing a really poor job of rescuing. <laughs> if, if, the, if folks who are oppressed are waiting for it to be liberated, 
there's plenty of evidence to say that the liberator is not doing that, at least not single-handedly. So liberation comes through cooperation, I think. Sometimes it's the liberate it's the oppressed people themselves who cooperate with God. Sometimes it's people outside the group or forces and factors. So you don't have to give up on liberation if you give up on omnipotence, but you have to give up the idea that God single-handedly liberates. And then the third one, I think the biggest one, is some people say, how do we have any hope that God is going to win at the end of history if God is not omnipotent? And my response to that is, I think we can have hope because God never gives up inviting us and all creation into that kind of loving relationship that you've been talking about. So while I recognize there might be some initial pushback and worries about giving up on omnipotence, I think there are ways to overcome those worries. Yeah, I think that's helpful, especially um, if someone is is struggling with, well, if if I give this up, then I have to give these other things up. And I think that's often the the charge levied even just against open relational theology. Sure. Um, yeah. Is it that, you know, the, the typical charges, well, you, you worship a weak God or, or your God, your God is not active. And I, I would say that, that when you put the understanding of an open and relational God up against a closed and all powerful God, the, the two are very different. I think the, the latter leads much easier to, a dualistic understanding of the universe, or even deism, mm -hmm. where God just kind of puts it in place and steps back and then intervenes from time to time. Whereas I think what you're trying to tell us, both through just an open relational understanding of God and through um, a rejection of omnipotence and and the embrace of omnipotence, is that that God is is always working. As right. You said God is always working for flourishing now. This isn't the flourishing, I would say, of, you know, the name it and claim it theology or of, um, you know, just just getting things. Yeah, I think right. it's the flourishing of when we respond to God in terms of those things that we have been shown are for the good of, of all and those ways that we respond to one another in love and relationship. Mm -hmm. When we live in that way, we flourish. And others flourish. And when we are more concerned about others than we are ourselves, that tends to bring flourishing. Um, yeah. Now, you know, I think a lot of people are afraid of the understanding of of selflessness at times. Yeah. Um, and there's always a conflict with, you know, boundaries and things like that. But I think when we trust a relationship. And we we are working in that. I think that is how we address those concerns as well, because you know all all of these concerns. You know, are, am I going to have to give up this? Am I have to give up that about yeah. who God is? Am I going to lose something if I reject omnipotence as a concept? I I think I think are dealt with a lot, especially through Scripture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when when we lean into understanding that that there's a conversation ongoing with God. Um, and I, th I think especially the Wesleyan understanding of Scripture, I think especially as we've tried to express it in the Church of Nazarene, specifically, mm -hmm. I would say, is that we understand that Scripture is an ongoing dialogue, that, mm -hmm. that there is this importance to, as Wesley would say, how we are saved and, and 
what are we saved into versus what are we saved from? And mm. I think that helps when we think about ampotence that that we're being saved into relationship. And I would even say that as as we look at the breadth of scripture, we don't see a God, as you've said, who is all powerful. No. Because we see um actors and things happening that bring harm. And if we if we trust that God does not want harm to come, and, and we see that in God's heart throughout Scripture of, of, of how it is expressed, this is who God is, mm. um, I think it, it, it colors the way that we look back at some of those stories. Yeah, I should. Um, you yeah. know, do we, do we compare Nahum and, and Jonah, mm. who seem to be telling the same story just from different viewpoints? Mm. Um, do we... Do we, and we're not throwing out scripture ever. I think we're just looking back on it and understanding because we've been shown the relational beauty of who Jesus is. And Jesus is telling us throughout his ministry, and I think this is especially present in, in the Gospel of John, but in others, and even Paul does this. I think we, we tend to dismiss Paul because we're afraid of some of his cultural things he said. But I think when we lean into all of this, we're seeing a description of a God who has come alongside people and has always been working in the world for the good, even mm-hmm. when we fight back, mm-hmm. even when there are those who don't want the good of the world. Um, and, you know, there's there's that understanding, I think, and I think that's where you bring out with omnip- omnipotence. See, I always want to say amni. Because of omni, just just try to get rid of you know fifty years of saying omni, but in omnipotence, I um I think what we're seeing here is a way to express who God is that that doesn't reject any of the truths of who God is or any of the truths that we talk about other than the one of all powerful, right? And right. I and and I I tend to think we can even use the word almighty without crossing our fingers, um, yeah. if we understand what almighty means. Yeah, I like to say that you know it's Almighty over other gods or over over other things, not over all, because we do know God can't lie. I mean that that's one of the easiest ones. If if God were all powerful, God could lie. I would think. Yeah. So yeah, that's a good point. I don't think there's a single passage in the entire Bible that explicitly supports omnipotence or the idea that God can control. I think the majority of Scripture points to a God of perfect love who loves everyone and everything. However, and this might make some of your your listeners nervous, I admit that there are some passages that portray God as unloving or portray God as wanting something that's unloving, that portray God as sometimes asking for genocide, for instance or God wanting to bash babies' heads against the rocks. Um, I don't want to pretend that every last portion of Scripture points unequivocally to a God of love, because I've read, <laughs> I've read the Bible, and there's some tough passages in there. Um, I've come to a place in my life now where I say, I think the majority point to the kind of view I'm proposing, and the other ones don't. And I'm fine with saying, I think those writers misunderstood God. Now, I do that because I think a fullest revelation of God comes in Jesus of Nazareth. 
And in him, I don't see someone who wants babies' heads bashed yeah. against the rocks or genocide. So um, that's the way I approach those tough passages in Scripture. Well, I think even when we look, you know, there's 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 passages where Moses argues with God over yeah. over killing, and there's yeah. there's several times where God changes God's mind based upon what happens. I mean, even. Um, I was preparing for a sermon that I actually never preached on uh, the the time when when Moses comes down and they've made the golden calf. The Israelites have made the golden calf, and um, I was reading in depth on that story and reading around it. And uh, you know, you know how you miss these things. Fifty years of reading scripture, fifty something or fifty four yeah. years of reading scripture, and you of hearing the stories and you miss something. But there's there's a part where where Moses is coming down and God just wants to just take care of everybody in, <laughs> in that story, but Moses convinced him not to. And so I think what we see there is a portrayal of the way that people would have thought about who God is. Right, right. But then Moses showing who God really is yeah. that that God is merciful that 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 um, that God wants. Um, the good. So I and I think when we see those things, I think we 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 can look the same way we look in today's world, um, in our our very divided at times world, where we often attribute to God things that are not of God to right. defend our position. And I think we see that in Scripture sometimes, and I, I think that's fully within the rabbinic tradition and the Hebrew tradition of the way we look at things, because we know that the Hebrews could kind of hold two different opposing ideas within their head and it yeah. not be a contradiction. I think we, I think in a, a lot of ways, our modern metamodern postmodern, whatever we are now would, would benefit from us recapturing some of that, being able to understand that, um, that we don't have to lean into certain pictures of who God is or certain pictures of, of humanity even. Right. And, um, you know, as Wesleyans, we lean into prevenient grace heavily. I mean, that was kind of Wesley's cheat sheet and cheat code for, mm-hmm. for how God works in the world and how his experience showed him that people could do good. But I think that's what we see. An omnipotent God allows there to be good done in the world, even with those who don't trust God. Even those who don't have faith can do good because an omnipotent God is there and those who respond to that understanding, even if they don't know what it is. Yep. And I, I would, th- I would think we're hopefully we're squarely with the Wesley there. Um, I'll, I'll find out if I'm not, somebody will probably talk about this, but um, you know, I think we're squarely with Wesley and understanding that, that God is working for the good and because of what God is doing. And if we, if we say omnipotent, that we could understand even better some of Wesley's decisions on those who don't know God but are still able to do good or those who have not even encountered God but understanding who God is because of God's omnipotence. Yeah. So an all-powerful God, I think, would would be able to reveal God's self to everyone to where we can say, oh, there's God. That's what God looks like. That's who God is. I think an omnipotent God is not a God who hides but is a God because there's such a difference there. And that's where I have to get into holiness. Tim Green talks about an odd God. I think that's what holiness, especially we can lean into, is God is so totally different that we don't recognize God mm. uh, because we want God to be more like 
the way we want to be at times, where we want to control things. We want to see, we like to be drawn towards power at times, but it seems that um, God, as expressed in Scripture, as expressed through Jesus, leading up to the entirety of the Christ event, is of a God who desires flourishing so much that God is willing to uh, give over in solidarity mm. rather than control and make things happen. And and I think, you know, when we look at the the temptations in in the Gospels, those are of temptations of power versus the temptations of love, mm. you know, of leaning into love. And every time Jesus is presented with the temptation of power, he chooses love instead. And I think that's the picture we have of who God is, is throughout that event of 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 how we recognize it and how we lean into, and that's the omnipotent God. I would, I would. That's how I express it, at least. Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, as John Wesley in his commentary to the book of First John, I think it was, where he says, "No biblical passage can mean that God is not loving, and no passage can mean that God's love isn't spread throughout all creation." Now he's making a claim about the priority of love there, mm-hmm. but. You know, if you read like that, that, uh, that passage you just referred to where Moses is arguing with God not to kill the people, uh, that's a passage that seems to portray God as unloving. <laughs> but you took it with a particular hermeneutic, a love hermeneutic in mind, and said, oh, no, no, that's, a, that's an example of us sometimes misunderstanding what God's up to. And God is really about love. And I'm totally with you. Yeah, and I think, I think that's how that's how we can embrace this in a, in a better way, especially as Wesleyans. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's much harder in Reform traditions, right? John Wesley was actually also explicit, especially in his sermon on providence, about some of the things that God can't do. John Wesley said God can't. John said he God can't deny Himself. God can't change the past. God can't undo what's been done. Um, but then in some other passages, he calls God omnipotent. And I have a, an essay coming out in the the next, uh, Wesleyan theological journal in which I say, Wesley wasn't quite consistent here. Um, he should have given up omnipotence, um, in, or at least redefined it radically, which he doesn't do. Um, so I think Wesley, I can, I can appeal to Wesley to support some of what I say about omnipotence, but uh, I can't appeal to Wesley for everything. Well, and I, I think as Wesleyans, we, we all do that. I think, yeah. I think Randy Maddox would do that. Dunning would do that. Weinkoop did it. I think we all do it because we know there are things that we don't necessarily agree with Wesley. And there are things that he just could not, he could just not make a certain leap because he didn't have the information yep. or we look at his contemporary place he was he was radical as it was with right. some of his uh, some of his conclusions but there were some that he just wasn't i think he was almost afraid to make some yep. logical steps i mean and we see that throughout when, when there's a, a theological framework created i mean even you know it takes it takes calvin's disciples to to fully lean into double predestination because Calvin doesn't really want to go there. Augustine doesn't really want to go there. 
Yeah. Um, so I think as Wesley grew, I think Wesleyanism grows as well. And um, I like to talk about that, that, that yes, we're centered in a lot of what Wesley did, but there's a lot that we disagree with Wesley on. Um, yeah. I you like know, yeah. this, this book is, is written in a Wesleyan spirit. And by that, I mean, if you take the love as your priority, which John Wesley did, I think you can make a good argument to end up where I'm at in this book. But not every last jot and tittle from Wesley's right is still put up. No, and I, and I think I mean I think that's a good thing. I think always when we when we deal with Wesley, there's several things like like Maddox likes to tell us we we definitely need to look at when it was written. Yes, <laughs> when yeah. Wesley said it. Just yeah. to figure out, is it the more mature Wesley or not? And then even then, I think we need to look at it in light of what we know now. Um, we've always been open to understanding um, Scripture and and everything through all of our entire lens of our hermeneutic of love, our hermeneutic of of understanding, you know, where we're not afraid of tradition or experience or reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that we hold all of those up to a lens of who Jesus is with that, that main hermeneutic that, that we, we try to see everything through, through Jesus. I hope, um, we, we sometimes fail. And I think a lot of us, we will make decisions and we'll go places that, that may be wrong. But I think that if we're afraid of being totally wrong, then I think we're not truly being Wesleyan and we're not truly being faithful to who God is, because I think the whole tenor of scripture is of people being wrong at yeah. times, you know, often wrong before they're right. I mean, Peter is a great example um, of, of making, making bad decisions and, and all the disciples, yeah. um, every single one of them um, misunderstood things. And I think even, even as they, and even as they got better, we know that Peter kept regressing <laughs> when he and Paul would disagree over Gentiles. So I think, I think we face a lot of the same struggles um, here in in the 21st century of of how do we express who God is best? Yeah. How are we able to um, lean into our tradition, but also our experience and our reason? And as Wesleyans, um, our claim is also that we believe that the Spirit is constantly working. Which right. means that God is constantly working in our world and constantly helping us to understand uh, the revelations of God and um, those things of who God is. So, um, I think I think that's how I read the book when I first read it. And full disclosure, I read a very early copy as well. Um, I was in on the team that was able to read early early drafts of this, but um, it is it's an excellent book. Uh, I will link my review of it in in this in the po- podcast notes here i'm also going to link to um several things i would like you uh, real quick tom just to tell us where we can find you online the the different things that you're doing and places that people can connect with you great i have a website that's my full name thomas j ord and my middle name is spelled j a y my last name o o r d thomasjord.com uh, but you can also find me at the Center for Open and Relational Theology. That website addresses the letter C, the number 4ORT.com. But I'm on social media a lot, and I see you there, Brandon. And, and you can send me emails if, if folks have questions. Send emails. I'm pretty good at responding to those. So thanks also for uh, not only reading an early copy of the book, but 
for your excellent review. I really appreciate that, Brandon. Yeah, I think I think it helps us uh, to to get reviews at least, you know, e- even if they're slightly biased because we've read the book before. But um, I think it, it's helpful for us to understand things. And I like to read a lot, so I've decided I'm going to start writing about what I read, and yeah. I think that's helpful. But and I will say that um, I think anyone will find you a gracious uh, discussion partner. I try. Um, even even when when people disagree, as long as they disagree as kindly as you try to be, I think they'll find um, a good discussion partner. And you're you're never afraid to respond uh, to to those who may disagree with you, and even those who agree. I think you're you've always been when really good and gracious about doing that, and that's what I see online typically. I know. And I know that a lot of us, as as we encounter some that disagree with us, we can run into those who are very, very recalcitrant and like to um, argue such that they will be ugly in the way they do those things. But I think I think as we work into um, thinking about who we are as Christians, especially if we believe in a God of love, that, that we need to put our money where our mouth is and act that way. Right. And, and yeah, we're going to have vigorous uh, disagreements sometimes as human beings and even as fellow Christians. But I think if we always keep in mind a God of love, a God who is omnipotent, so to speak, I think that will help us all. And I do appreciate your work um, and a lot of the, the discussions I get to hear when you when you're on other podcasts and you're talking to others. I really appreciate your voice and some of the things you're saying about who God is so that we can understand a God who is fully invested in creation. And I think that if, if anybody takes anything away, it's that, that God is fully invested in creation such that God wants creation to flourish. And part of that is that relational response that, that we give as human beings in our place in creation, but also understanding how we impact those around us, both hum- human and creature, so to speak. So I really appreciate what you're doing. So thanks for those kind words and thanks for this conversation. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Parson Brown podcast. I hope you enjoy what you've heard, and if you did, please subscribe. Thanks for joining us on this journey.